0: Some of the best jokes I've ever heard were told by my 7th grade math teacher, Mr. Maloney. Back then, I didn't really have much reason to laugh. Pre-algebra was a struggle, I got cut from the tennis team tryouts, and I was just discovering the iPod touch while all my friends were busy linking up on their smartphones. But the end of Mr. Maloney's Friday class was always the highlight of my week, because he'd always bring out one of his homemade, one-of-a-kind blonde jokes. Now believe me, I don't have anything against blondes, but these jokes were just way too funny. It was almost a little riddle to guess how dumb they were going to be. Like, how could the blonde possibly screw this up? Of course, I was able to laugh pretty freely, seeing as I had brown hair, but one of the students in the class didn't think much of those jokes and went and talked to the teacher after class to complain. The next Friday, Mr. Maloney called for our attention and gave us a quick clarification. He said, Look guys, I'm a little old. My hair's turned white over the years, but I want to show you a picture of me when I was in college. A young Mr. Maloney in a hot rod showed up on the projector screen. Now, before you all make fun of me for my outfit, which, by the way, was a pair of really tight shorts, check out what's going on on top of my head. As we peered closer, we saw what he was getting at, and everything clicked together. Mr. Maloney had been a blonde. Now we knew why he was telling the jokes, why he wasn't afraid somebody would report him to the principal or go home crying to their parents. He was only talking about himself. He was free to make as many blonde jokes as his heart desired, and none of us, not even our blonde classmates, could say anything about it. Since he was a blonde, there's no way anything he said could be offensive to blondes because, well, that would be like if he insulted himself. We all sat back comfortably and listened, with smiles already dancing across our faces as he went on to deliver the next Friday punchline. If you're a little uncomfortable with the resolution of this story, you're in the right place. Get ready to mess with the madness. Welcome back to Plato. I gotta address the elephant in the room it's been a while. I could say it's because school started in August, and I haven't really found the time to write and record, which is part of the reason, but honestly, I haven't been feeling up to it because I've been searching for inspiration. The goal of this podcast that I set out way back in July was to challenge our ideals and beliefs, really dig into the assumptions we make and why they might not be so great after all. Well, I was going to write an episode on education since there's so much for me to talk about, but after a huge writer's block, I realized that everything I wanted to say was pretty much already out there. I mean, We all know the education system in America needs improving, it's just as much a part of the game as bias in the media or democratic representation. The point is, I didn't really think I could challenge anything substantial since education is just one of those things we live with, with all its imperfections. So I went back to the drawing board, which in this case was a bunch of YouTube videos that rabbit-holed me all the way to stand-up comedy. That's where I finally got my inspiration and we'll be looking at stand-up in particular when it comes to evaluating what funny actually means. But let's get back to my seventh grade class, The question that was burning in my mind when I reflected back on this, and which hopefully came up for you guys as well, is why does being blonde give him the right to make blonde jokes? He obviously didn't mean any harm by telling them, but he probably would have been the same way even if he had black hair. Or no hair at all. He clearly didn't believe in the ditzy blonde stereotype, and he would tell jokes about both sexes, so he wasn't just playing to the dumb blonde girl stereotype, which might have made it a bit sexist. So why did being blonde give him a free pass? Comedy doesn't care who you are or the color of your hair, a joke is a joke. We're gonna dissect that last part a bit later, but first we need a framework to understand what comedy really is, and we'll start, as always, with its etymology. But this time, we're gonna mix in a little history. If you're a fan of ancient Greece, you probably know that comedy began as a dramatic art form performed in the Athenian theater, paired with its counterpart, Tragedy. But the word comedy comes from the Greek roots komos, meaning festival or revelry, and edain, meaning to sing. What does singing at a festival have to do with cracking jokes? Well, the last of the old Greek comedy era appears in the work of Aristophanes, whose plays were performed in Athens during the religious festival of Dionysus, the god of wine, madness, ecstasy, sex, and, naturally, the phallus. The Athenians would go around drunk and mostly naked, dancing around artistic renditions of the male penis, and sing a bunch of scandalous songs at the top of their lungs. Actually, this festival still happens to this day. It might sound like a football locker room after a homecoming win, not that I know the feeling after that 73-7 loss, but it eventually developed into a 6-part comedic drama that had no filter. They criticized society, called out specific rich people on their BS, made obscene parodies, and crucially, they talked about what life was like for the common person. You see, tragedies were very similar in exaggeration, but they focused on the elite. Think Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet, they're always about the prince or princess. Comedies featured ordinary people as characters, people who ended up in funny situations and fought in made-up wars. Comedies were really often written in the layman's language, and also ended happily, unlike tragedies. That's why Dante's epic is called the Divine Comedy, because he wrote it in the common Italian rather than the hoity-toity Latin that was reserved for the educated classes. So basically, the word comedy comes from the socially critical plays performed by drunk genital worshippers back in ancient Athens. Great. To be honest, that doesn't sound too far from what we have today. Add a few viewer discretion warnings and electricity, and you pretty much have Bill Burr's Netflix specials. So what happened to comedy in between? Dante's Inferno is literally a trip into hell, probably the least funny experience he could have come up with. Where did the meaning of comedy change, and why has it taken a turn back to its roots in the modern day? This variation has to do with the philosophy of humor, one of the more overlooked, but incredibly intricate sections of philosophical discourse. The first classic commentators on humor were Aristotle and Plato, and of course, they were totally at odds. In his work *Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle asserts that humor is essential to the full human existence. It's a virtue that exists between two extreme vices, buffoonery, which is an excess of laughter, and boorishness, which is a lack of laughter as a response to anything. To Aristotle, appreciation of humor, even derogatory or sarcastic humor, indicates the wittiness of the free man. He did say, though, that we should try to avoid causing others pain with our laughter if we can still keep the joke. Plato, on the other hand, saw laughter as a loss of self-control, no matter how little. In his book Republic, where he outlines his ideal society, he says that members of the government and militia should avoid laughter because in high-pressure situations, quote, violent laughter provokes a violent reaction, end quote. He also believed that laughter was almost always directed against another individual with malicious intent. Quote, "The ridiculous is a certain kind of evil, specifically a vice." End quote. What he means is that we're laughing at other people's faults, their inability to recognize their own lack of virtues or inability to do something. By laughing, we're creating a superiority complex in our own heads, which Plato believed was detrimental to the soul. So, those are two very different views from the heaviest hitters in philosophy, but they did both agree on one thing. Laughter is a form of scorn, mocking people to whom we, as the audience, feel superior. This superiority theory was taken up by the Catholic Church in the medieval era and has repercussions even in the way the Bible was written. In the Bible, God only laughs at people out of scorn, usually when he's about to smite someone for not believing in Him. For example, from the book of Psalms 37.13, The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. End quote. Sounds pretty dark if you ask me. Even the prophets in the Bible meet laughter with their wrath. When a group of kids laugh at the prophet Elisha for being bald in the second book of Kings, he turned around and looked at them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of a wood and mauled 42 of them." Yikes. So the first theory that came out about laughter was that it made you morally corruptible, violent and moody, and could potentially get you ripped apart by bears, unless you happened to be the Russian UFC champ Khabib Nurmagomedov, in which case fighting bears was kinda your thing at the age of 9. That's a far cry from laughter is the best medicine, and it makes me kind of feel a bit iffy about putting these jokes in the podcast. But you might have a couple comments already. The first one that popped into my mind was, really? There's no way every time we laugh, we're mocking something or feeling superior to someone else. I mean, we really often laugh at ourselves when you mess up, or at something cute, or happy, or unexpected. But even some Renaissance thinkers supported the theory, like Thomas Hobbes and Rene Descartes. Hobbes thought that humans were inherently competitive and focused on individual development, so when we laugh it's because we see a sign that we're winning against someone else, and we prematurely declare victory, counting our chickens before they hatch. Descartes took a different view, saying that laughter, quote, is a sort of joy mingled with hatred which proceeds from perceiving some small evil in a person whom we consider to be deserving of it, end quote. These two thinkers formalized the superiority theory of laughter, but were soon criticized by Francis Hutchinson, who pointed out that when we laugh at clever wordplay or unexpectedly provocative imagery in classics like The Odyssey, for example, quote, few imagine themselves superior to Homer, end quote. So if superiority is only part of the picture, what's the rest of it? In the 18th century, Lord Shaftesbury wrote an essay on the freedom of wit and humor, which first expressed the relief theory. For you medical-minded people out there, this one gets pretty interesting. Back in his time, scientists believed that the body ran pretty much like a hydraulic engine, a bunch of fluids passing through different pipes, building up and releasing pressure. Each of these fluids was connected to a particular feeling, so your senses and emotions were directly correlated. These fluids were called humors, and the reason is because laughter releases a nervous pressure in the body, which medical experts at the time thought was literally the release of these pressurized fluids. This might sound pretty stupid, but it actually wasn't that bad of a read on the human body. A whole bunch of our internal chemical systems, like the lymphatic or endocrine systems, are actually governed by fluids. At the time, fluid mechanics was the cutting edge of physics, and as a general trend in the history of science, people tend to use the hottest new physics as a metaphor to try to explain pretty much everything else going on in the world. Obviously, medicine has come a long way since then, but while the biological reasoning might have changed, the emotional side was still important to psychologists such as Sigmund Freud, who saw laughter as a release of energy that would otherwise be used to repress emotions. In this way, laughter redirects our energy to allow us to feel our full emotional range, and it's triggered when we encounter a junction between incongruous emotions. Take this story from Sarah Silverman.
1: I'm gonna, okay, I'm gonna be indulgent and tell a story that's just a true story. Um, It's about one of my sisters. I have three sisters. This is about one of them. Um, I won't say which one but her name is Jodine. (laughs) Um, Jodine went to Boston University and uh, if you're familiar with BU, they have co-ed dorms, which most universities have now, um, but they have co-ed bathrooms in the co-ed dorms. And Jodine uh, got the drunkest she had ever been her freshman year, like so many freshmen do. And she stumbled back to her room and she managed to get her uh, jeans off and, you know, and just passed out in, in a t-shirt and underwear. And a few minutes later, the room started spinning and she ran to the bathroom and she started throwing up and she's vomiting. And while she's vomiting, she can feel that somebody is tugging her underwear down but she couldn't turn around or stop it um, because she was throwing up so hard. And she's vomiting and vomiting and they're tugging her underwear down. It's going down all the way down to the ground. And she finally finishes throwing up and she whips her head around to see who's there, but she didn't see anybody because she had been shitting herself. That's a true story. I'm gonna say... Like, I would call that a relief laugh. Like, a relief laugh.
0: Wow. That was unexpected, to say the least. I wonder what her sister thought of that joke. Let's take a look at how Silverman crafted this piece. We start with a buildup of nervous tension. The situation seems like a social commentary. Those of us in college, and even those of us who aren't, are well aware of the cases of sexual assault that are often never reported. Silverman builds the tension with her voice. She sounds like she's telling an emotional story, pauses in all the right places, you could hear a pin drop, the entire audience was that silent. It doesn't even seem like a joke, she's talking about a serious thing that we as a society need to address. But then, She hits us with that punchline, and suddenly all the dots we connected in our heads, all the assumptions we made, come crashing down hilariously around us. It's like the antithesis of a reality check, a surreality check if you will. The conflicting feelings are replaced with a sort of gratitude, since we can now admit that even though the context was serious, the joke was pretty funny. And that's Freud's definition of the setup for laughter, a release of energy which allows us to express normally inappropriate emotions. Now this theory sounds promising, but it's got a few flaws. First, that's not how the human body works, and second, that would mean that every joke would have to build some sort of nervous tension, which doesn't always happen with innocent wordplay or puns. Make way for the incongruity theory, an offshoot of the relief theory that's probably the most accepted theory today. Championed by some of the early to mid 20th century thinkers like Immanuel Kant and Soren Kierkegaard, this theory suggests that laughter is caused by a perceived incongruity between expectation and reality. In other words, The comedian violates some expectation that the audience has, either pre-existing from the bias of normal life, or created from the context clues the comedian has left to follow. This is pretty much the way stand-up comedy works. They tell a story, build up to a dramatic point, and then hit us with the punchline. It's a lot like that tension release, but it doesn't have to be tension. It can just be a normal story where we build up a sort of expectation for what's to come. Check out this bit from Trevor Noah from Lost in Translation. I remember the worst encounter
2: I had with the TSA was out in Burbank, California. Tiny little airport and I was flying out and I was coming to New York, right? And so, I'm in Burbank Airport and I go through security, and then for some reason I was beeping, I don't know why. Walk to the metal detector, and I'll, beep. I'll go out, beep. Go out, beep, go out, beep, go out. And every time I have to take something off, I gotta beep, and the agent, he's just losing it. He, the whole time, he's like, take that off, take it off. And I go like, beep, 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 he's like, take that off, take it off, and I come back and he's like, take that off. And he's getting more and more angry. I'm basically naked right now, and he's losing it, losing it. Like, I felt like an underperforming stripper, it was horrible. He's just, he's just like, take, no, just, ah." Oh. Finally, he's like, "You know what? Just get out here! Get out here! Get out here!" And so I walk to the side. And he's like, "Go ahead and put your hands up. Go ahead and put your hands up. I put my arms up." And he whipped out a little, little uh, metal personal metal detector. Yeah, it looks like it looks like a midget sword, right? But they but they call it the wand. That's what they call it, the wand. And so he whips that out. Yeah, because that hundred thousand dollar machine. that's play, play. Shit just got real. And so he looks at me and says, "Go ahead and stick your hands up, sir, and just keep them right there." So I put my arms up, and he scans me. He's like, You got any uh you got any uh, metal objects on you? And <laughs> they like, well, well then what was that for? <laughs> if you were gonna ask me anyway, then what was this? The four plates of my honesty? What is this? Why
0: now obviously there were a lot of different styles of jokes there, some small quips, some irony among others. But the big picture was a setup and the classic comedic letdown. He tells us it's a TSA story and we're already expecting it to be bad. We have some experience either firsthand or through the vine about how intimidating and biased the TSA can be. And he keeps building that expectation up through the story. The metal detector keeps beeping. He keeps taking off his clothes and the officer gets angrier and angrier, until finally we get to the real confrontation. And then, right when we don't know what to expect next, when we're all at the edge of our seat waiting to hear how bad it gets, The officer asks a pretty stupid question, totally out of pocket, and we laugh as our expectations of the outcome fail. We don't feel superior to the officer or have any nervous tension since we know Trevor's fine in the end, but we laugh because what we expected to happen is so far from reality. Kant describes this effect mechanically, suggesting that, quote, With all our thoughts is harmonically combined a movement in the organs, alternating tension and relaxation, which communicates itself to the diaphragm, end quote. Basically, he's saying that if our thoughts are jostled around thanks to this incongruity, there'll be a corresponding mechanical jostling within the body, causing laughter. Some of you might already know that Kant was a pretty serious guy. He really lived his philosophy, so he didn't really see much reasonable value in jokes. He saw laughter as quote, "gratification in a thought that at bottom represents nothing end quote." But he did draw parallels between humor and other freeform art, such as music and games of chance. This sort of playfulness in the mind, whether it's playing with musical tones, with fortune, or with your thoughts, is mimicked by a playful shift in your gut, like getting butterflies from anticipation or the tickling sensation of joyful laughter. Another twist on the incongruity theory was made by Arthur Schopenhauer, who thought that incongruity isn't just between expectation and reality of an event, but of objects and concepts in general. As an example, he tells a joke about two Austrians who both like to walk alone. One of them says to the other, Hey, you like walking alone. I like walking alone. Let's walk alone together. In this joke, there's not really an expectation that gets built, but instead a discrepancy between the concept of walking alone and what the Austrian is suggesting, which would clearly not be walking alone. Schopenhauer analyzes the logical fallacy here quote, He starts from the conception, a pleasure which two love they can enjoy together. End quote. But then he applies it to exactly the case where it doesn't apply. We expect this logic to work out normally, so when it doesn't, we laugh. Schopenhauer then goes on to explain why we get offended when someone laughs at us.: quote, "It asserts that there is a great incongruity between our conceptions and the objective realities end quote. Basically, to laugh at someone for something they think or do is to suggest that they are totally out of touch with reality, and no one wants to hear that. Okay, now that we have a general idea of the reasons why we laugh, let's check out what we're laughing at most often. In The Hacks Handbook, comic Andy Kindler outlines a few of the overdone topics in the stand-up scene. This includes comparison jokes, like, man, LA is so different from good old Texas, stereotypes and impressions of famous people, and even observational comedy, that's the what's up with squirrels joke from Spongebob. One of the biggest tips out there for stand-up comedians is to come up with a compelling story, something that's believable but will allow them to give their unique take on a current issue. Dave Chappelle, for example, makes a lot of jokes about racism. Here's one of his most memorable bits.
3: That happened to me, I, I was in Mississippi. I was in Mississippi doing a show, and I go to a restaurant to order some food, and uh, I say to the guy, I say, I would like to have, and before I even finish my sentence, he says, THE CHICKEN! I said, what the fuck? <laughs> I could not believe it. Could not believe that shit. This man was absolutely right. I said, how did he know that I was gonna get some chicken? I asked him, I said, how you know that? How did you know I was gonna get some chicken? He looked at me like I was crazy. Come on, buddy. Come on, buddy. Now everybody knew as soon as you walk through the goddamn door, you're going to get some chicken. <laughs> it is no secret down here that blacks and chickens are quite fond of one another. <laughs> then I finally understood what he was saying, and I got upset. I wasn't even mad. I was just upset. I wasn't ready to hear that shit. All these years, I thought I liked chicken because it was delicious. (laughs) Turns out I'm genetically predisposed to liking chicken.
0: Now you got to admit that a bit of that incongruity and tension release made a pretty serious situation into a hilarious bit. But what about the topic itself? Comedy is a critical art form, and a lot of comedians use their stage to call out social norms, business practices, and government policies in appealing ways. But when we take a real issue and laugh at it, Are we really being critical thinkers, or are we just playing it off as a joke? What is it about comedy that makes us feel good if it keeps dodging around the real issues? We already have some answers to those questions from philosophers. The proponents of the superiority theory saw laughter as a distraction, a way to take our minds off of the real issues and reinforce our positive self-image by ridiculing others for their faults. We don't have to recognize our own faults in the process, so comedy does damage to the social consciousness. The incongruity theorists were split on this issue, but mostly agreed that the incongruity between expectation and reality was contrived. For the most part, those expectations are pretty valid, so challenging them doesn't do that much social good. Also, jokes like the Austrian one explore loopholes in logic that are fun to think about, but aren't really a subject for heavy social criticism. The relief theory psychologists though saw humor as absolutely essential to civilization. By releasing these pent-up psycho-emotional pressures, literally blowing off steam, we could later reconvene and be productive as individuals. If we don't allow our energies to shift, as Freud would put it, the valves inside of us have a very good chance of blowing up. Of course, the other theories don't really dispute this, no one's saying that laughter isn't good for you, but the relief theory is the only one that says it's necessary for the evolution of society. And maybe that's where we need to apply the theory, to society as a whole. Imagine all of humanity as one big person, All our populations fit in different areas of the body and work together to make it move. Our identities come from where we are in the body and what systems we're a part of, and those can overlap. For example, the gut is part of the digestive, circulatory, and nervous systems. If we as the body of humanity aren't jostled by laughter, our internal tensions get in the way of our cohesion. There's always going to be strife between groups, wars, natural disasters, and a whole lot of stuff to put us on edge. We need a carefully crafted release mechanism that allows us to release this tension where it hurts the most. Comedians like Dave Chappelle are so successful because they have their fingers on the pulse of society, they know where it hurts thanks to their lived experiences, and they make relatable jokes that address that elephant in the room. If jokes are good when they challenge the audience, then it follows that jokes are bad when they play to the audience's biases, creating an echo chamber effect. This phenomenon is commonly referred to as claptor. The way the audience reacts when a joke reaffirms their previous beliefs. clapter aligns well with the superiority theory, when the audience and the comedian share a laugh at someone or something they mutually hate. On the other hand, the audience misses out on both the relief and incongruity forms of laughter, created by a mismatch between what the comedian says and what they expect based on previous bias. Let's take a look at the difference between clapter and critical laughter. A great example of the critical lens of comedy is Last Week Tonight by John Oliver, which takes the form of comedic investigative journalism. Each episode, Oliver dissects an aspect of our society that he feels we should all be more worried about. And usually, once we know the facts, we agree wholeheartedly. So how is he challenging our perspective if he says stuff that we just agree with? Listen to this clip from his episode about bail, which ran in 2015.
4: Now, whether he was guilty or not, the fact is a non-violent offender spent time in Rikers because he didn't have $1,000. And this is a systemic problem. Increasingly, bail has become a way to lock up the poor, regardless of guilt, because Miguel Miguel was a family man who posed no danger to society whatsoever, and he was stuck in Rikers. Whereas, millionaire Robert Durst, who'd been accused of murder in Texas, had a completely different experience of the bail system.
2: I had been told by the detective that uh, you've been charged with murder, Bail has been set at $250,000. But was your intention when you put up the $250,000 to run away? Oh, goodbye, $250,000. Goodbye, jail. I'm I'm out.
4: I'm out? (laughs) (coughs) That, of course, is an excerpt from Robert Durst's children's books. Goodbye, jail. (laughs) Goodbye, money. Goodbye, bail. I killed them all, but goodbye, jail. (laughs) Of course. Of course.
0: We can all agree with what Oliver is saying. Obviously the bail system needs to be revised in this country, and it certainly is a systemic issue. But what Oliver does well here is that he brings our attention to a topic with which most people are unfamiliar, and shows us how our expectations, you know, justice, fairness, equality, are totally violated by reality. His goodbye jail joke, a play on the classic children's book Goodnight Moon, underscores this incongruity by exaggerating it even further. Children's books definitely don't deal with topics like jail and murder. The essential point of Oliver's comedy is that no matter how invested we think we are in our society, we're pretty drastically out of touch with some of its hidden pockets. He brings these to the forefront of our consciousness and forces us to reconcile our previous notions of society with this unpleasant mess he researches. This is the critical tension, the juxtaposition of emotions, that makes his jokes so poignant. When we're faced with such a jarring reckoning, we seek a release for our pent-up emotional imbalance. Now, not all late-night shows are like Oliver's. The majority of them play more toward claptor by dealing with topics that we're already familiar with thanks to the news cycle. Take Stephen Colbert's monologues on The Late Show. Unlike his previous role at The Colbert Report, he's not satirizing or critically commenting on the news of the day, he's just taking cheap shots at the people his mostly liberal audience already dislikes. Take a listen.
4: TRUMP HAS REPEATEDLY SAID THAT THIS HUNDRED DAYS THING IS TOTALLY ARBITRARY, OKAY? TOTALLY UNIMPORTANT. AND TO PROVE HOW UNIMPORTANT IT IS, HE TOOK OUT A TV AD, HE CUT A CAKE ON AIR FORCE ONE, AND HE HELD A RALLY IN PENNSYLVANIA. THE THEME OF THAT RALLY, PROMISES MADE, PROMISES KEPT. WHICH IS BETTER THAN THEIR ORIGINAL SLOGAN, PROMISES MADE, NEVER MIND, NEVER SAID IT, FAKE NEWS, WATCH FOX AND FRIENDS. (laughs) SO, IT'S NICE, IT'S GOT A RHYTHM.
0: Did you hear the audience at the end? They were laughing, sure, but they weren't releasing any nervous energy or recognizing their own distance from reality. They were just clapping along, hanging on to every agreeable insult, every perfect fault of the president that Colbert pointed out. Now look, I'm not saying that comedians like Colbert, Samantha Bee, Jimmy Fallon, or any other late-night hosts aren't funny. They certainly know how to get a few quips in, a lot better than I ever could, but their brand of comedy isn't suited for generating social change. It works within the system, in this case the two-party political divide, without objectively criticizing society as a whole. The mark of effective comedians, Dave Chappelle, John Oliver, Sasha Baron Cohen, is that they maintain an honest, open role in the conversation and force the audience to reflect on their own actions. And this can reveal profound and uncomfortable truths about who we are. Listen to Sasha Baron Cohen describe his prank on a young Trump supporter.
4: In my last show, who is America, I found an educated, normal guy who had held down a good job but who, on social media, repeated many of the conspiracy theories that President Trump using Twitter has spread more than 1,700 times to his 67 million Twitter followers. The President even tweeted that he was considering designating Antifa, who are anti-fascists who march against the far right, as a terror organization. So disguised as an Israeli anti-terrorism expert, Colonel Eran Murad, yalla, let's go. Disguised as him, I told my interviewee that at the women's march in San Francisco, Antifa were plotting to put hormones into babies' diapers in order to make them transgender. And this man believed it. I instructed him to plant small devices on three innocent people at the march and explained that when he pushed a button, he'd trigger an explosion that would kill them all. They weren't real explosives, of course, but he thought they were. I wanted to see, would he actually do it? The answer was yes. He pushed the button and thought he'd actually killed three human beings. Voltaire was right when he said, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities.
0: This goes far beyond the Trump rally gate crashing we're used to seeing from The Daily Show's Jordan Klepper. This isn't innocent stupidity, it has the potential for violence. This sort of comedy forces us to grapple with parts of society that go by unnoticed. This would-be vigilante was just a normal guy, not some crazed creator of conspiracy theories. But in a well-timed prank, Cohen revealed that even this guy has the capacity for great evil on shaky grounds. And what's brilliant is, as horribly as that scenario could've gone, that prank was hilarious. To me, there's no one theory that fully encompasses what makes us laugh. But we can and should tell the difference between predictable humor and critical humor. Comedy is funny for a variety of reasons, but in order to achieve the depth of sophistication that makes comedy an art, we as an audience need to think deep about why it is that we're laughing, what notions of ours are being challenged, and how this comedy helps us mess with the madness. Thanks for listening in guys, I hope you all get a chance to watch Borat 2 or rewatch some of your favorite funnies, and I'll catch y'all next time.